science. some science stories science in the news science behind the news on love and science and as usual i'm joined uh, by andrew glester hi Hello. andrew how Hello. are you doing um, oh well i'm all right thanks how are you are you a fine and happy man i'm pretty good yeah i've good. Uh, had a, a lovely weekend going to the royal albert hall to watch star wars Oh, wow. Live in concert with the London Symphony Orchestra. I didn't even know about this. I mean, yeah. this is it's definitely your bag. Well, they're just playing the music from Star Wars. <laughs> no, it was the film on a massive screen. Right. And London Symphony Orchestra, of course, the, the orchestra who performed the uh, the soundtrack originally back in the 70s, uh, performing the music. I think it's different musicians now, I think. Um, and uh, they were performing the music live along with the uh, the thing at the screen. The show, showing the film. There you go. Those are the words. Um, and, How fantastic. Um, yeah. They didn't play the Cantina song, though, you know? They, that was just on the sound. You know, you know <laughs> uh, the one I'm Oh, right. yes. Yes, yeah. when they go into with yeah. all the strange people in the. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess that's just, you know, a bit too good for the London <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. They couldn't manage that one. You yeah. must have been in your element. I, it was quite wonderful. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're not doing Empire Strikes Back today. Um, otherwise, obviously, I wouldn't be here. No, I'd no. Be you'd, yes, you'd so, be uh, up there. Yeah. 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 No, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing. Anyway, that's what I've been doing. And uh, that's about it. How are you, Malcolm? I'm absolutely fine. Thank you. Um, I I, I thought it was a great weekend. We had, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw any of the children in need, almost a, well, it's over a billion pounds now they've raised since they started. Ah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. Not, not on last Friday night, no, but no, since they started. I mean, that. that's incredible, isn't it? it a, billi- is. uh, a, a billion pounds, something, a, something like that. Brilliant, brilliant. Thing. I don't know any event that brings, uh, sort of charity event that brings people together so much. It's rather no. marvellous to We watch. could do with a bit of bringing people together, couldn't we, generally? We certainly could. Well, yeah. you know, in the new, there's this terrible story in the news. It's going from something really rather lovely to something really awful. Uh, we've been watching... We've all been watching with horror the, the uh, story of the fires in uh, Northern California, just north of Sacramento, which is the capital of California, where they've had um, wildfires. Um, destroyed, completely destroyed uh, the town of uh, Paradise. And uh, the missing number of more than 1,000 people, 1,200 people at last count. Now, that we are not saying... That 1,200 people have perished in those fires, we don't know yet, but people who are unaccounted for. So it is a major, major disaster by uh, all accounts. So um, we just hope that um, more people are are found and more people are are accounted for uh, safe and alive, but uh, tragically many won't. Uh, One of the concerns, this is one of the science stories in the news, is that there are so many more wildfires now around the world. Uh, We've seen wildfires also in California, but also in places that don't get wildfires, part of the tundra in um, um, uh, close to the Arctic Circle caught fire this summer. Mm. Um, That's not very normal. No. Um, And... um, 
the worry is that uh, there will be a rise in CO2 emissions, which we're desperately trying to keep down, just because of the forest fires. So the Paris Climate Agreement, which is trying to keep global temperatures below 2 degrees centigrade, could uh, become harder. Yeah, I, it's very hard to think about this story without thinking about Donald Trump, really, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, his, his statement recently that um, uh, he'd been speaking to the president of Finland. Was it Finland? Saying, yes. saying that... Uh, You're talking um, about raking the yeah, forest. The, yeah, the, the, the reason that we had to have these uh, fires in America, according to Donald Trump, is because they don't rake the floor uh, in the forest, right, the ground in the forest, which is just, according to the people of Finland, absolute nonsense. If you want a little bit of fun, get yourself onto Twitter and look for the raking America great again hashtag. That's quite fun. They're all out there with their rakes in the forest. But it, from a serious point of view, you know, the reason we know how um, wildfires work and we, the reason we know how uh, this is going to affect the climate is because of the climate work the earth observation work that nasa does and one of the first things that he did of course when he came in was to take away the funding for nasa's budget for atmospheric and earth sciences so uh, we've got somebody in a position i mean before he came in there was a lot of concern about what he was going to do right there was a lot of concern that he might make really stupid decisions that affect people's lives but we didn't know he was going to do it and he's doing it, and we're seeing the effect of what he's doing. I'm not saying he's caused the um, the wildfires, obviously. But the the reason that we can understand wildfires, the reason that we could do something about them is because of the science that we put into it, the research that we put into it. And here we have a man who has total disregard for science, who's in charge of the pot of money and where it goes. And it's it's just, when you've got this kind of thing happening, it's it. I find it quite odd that we have somebody who is so wrong so often in power and he just gets away with it time and time again. You're a bit cross, aren't you? I am a bit cross about it. I can tell that. I can tell that. Well, um... I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, I think you've just, you've just, you, you. Can we you, talk about space? Said it. Let's talk. Let's talk about space, and let's uh, let's talk about the moon. Oh, that's a good idea. Because um, we um, we tend not to associate the Chinese too much with moon lunar exploration, but they're going. Yeah, well, they they did go in the, 2013 with the. Yeah. I think I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, Changi. I'm going to say Changi. And my apologies if it's not right. It's it's like the word change, but with an apostrophe before yeah, the. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so they had Changi. My Mandarin is not exactly up to date. Okay, but okay. Yeah. My mind's are non-existent. And <laughs> uh, so they went in 2013. Uh, lander on on the moon there, on this side of the moon. And um, the, what the lovely thing was that it's a good idea when you're doing a space mission is to have a backup. So you send your um, instruments to the moon or wherever you're sending them to but you make two of them just in case it blows up on launch or whatever or on landing so it didn't it was a successful mission so they're going back they're sending but the, what they're sending back is the um the, the instrumentation the scientific instrument instrumentation to do the measurements on the moon they're sending them back but they're sending them to a different part of the moon and the place they're sending them to is very exciting indeed for those of us who care about this kind of thing uh because they're sending them to a huge crater the largest 
impact crater on the moon, which is just on the other side of the moon, yeah. right down on the South Pole. L- let me just ask you something very basic. Okay. The moon rotates. Yes, it does. Why don't we ever see why there is such a thing as the dark side of the moon? Uh, You'd think we'd see it if it turned. Yes, you would think so. And uh, it's, it's called something tidally locked. So it is tidally locked. Okay. To us because of the, a, a quirk of the orbits that we have, um, it has ended up being um, the, one part of it faces us. And it does wobble slightly. It does wobble. So there's a little bit on the edge that we see occasionally... Uh, but it's like a little strip that you just see on the edge of the moon as it just wobbles as it goes around. But okay. we just have this one bit facing us. Anyway, there's this crater on the bottom. Sorry, yeah. I don't know if I answered that, but there's, there's this crater on the bottom, uh, which is a huge impact crater. Uh, we'll probably talk about impact craters on Earth later in the show, but there's a um, impact craters on the moon. If you've seen them, they tend to have a ridge around the edge and then a flat bit, and then in the middle they have a peak. And that's where the meteor or whatever it is that's hit the the moon has hit it and then the material has spread out and the little bit in the middle if you can imagine it's just popped up yeah and then stayed there um what it did when it impacted because it was such a big thing that, that impacted the moon there to make that big impact crater is that it brought up quite a lot of the rock that was underneath the surface so the reason why the chinese space agency is sending changi 4 there is because it will give us clues to um, what the moon is made of underneath the surface because we know a little bit about it but just like when the apollo uh, astronauts landed on the moon the first time back in 1969 yeah they didn't know whether it was actually going to just sink into the surface and how far it was going to sink into the surface because they didn't know what the dust on the moon was like i have a book that was given to me as a prize at school and it actually says in it this gives this gives away my age <laughs> when we land on the moon it said we we don't know whether or not a spacecraft will sink into the dust. Yeah, no, yeah. awesome. I think well, I still have that somewhere. Wonderful uh, Arthur C. Clarke story, full of moon dust, based on that very idea that we don't know what it is that yeah. we're going, when we're going to land there. Anyway, lovely stuff. Um, and it's uh, but it, the, the, one of the scientists involved in this um, in this mission has said it's if you just take the samples that we've got. Because we got samples in the 70s, both from the Apollo missions and the Russian lunar missions. Um, and we haven't had anything come back from the moon since then. So this is a sample. No, that's sorry. This is that I'm getting ahead of myself there. But um, it's a bit like landing on uh, what we have at the moment. Our picture of the of the moon at the moment is a bit like landing in Great Britain and pretending that that's told you about the whole planet earth and of course it doesn't you have to go to other parts of the planet to find out about those but this as i say this particular area is is interesting because it has thrown up matter from inside the moon Uh, and it it happened it possibly happened we don't know when it happened but maybe about 1.4 billion years ago and if so then uh, that tells us quite a lot about uh, this the, the formation of the moon and and how it comes to be. There's, just very quickly, there's another one, Changi Five, which is going up. So Changi Four is being launched in December of this year. Changi Five is being launched at some point next year, and that's actually a sample return mission. So that's going to go pick up rocks, pick from up the moon. moon rock from the far side. These are all robotic, just to yeah. say there aren't people doing yeah, this. Yeah. It's going to pick up the uh, rocks, put them in a bag, and then that bag is going to launch on a rocket and. 
join up with the orbiter and then come back to Earth. And then everybody on Earth is going to want to... Um, uh, every geologist on Earth is going to want uh, to yeah. get their hands on those rocks. Absolutely. Unfortunately for America, they won't be able to get their hands on those rocks because of a, a, an agreement that they signed politically in 2011, which said that any American scientist who wants to study anything to do with... Uh, Chinese science has to get Congress to agree to it before they do it. Yeah. Crazy old world. It, it really is. Well, look, uh, the next story that we uh, are going to uh, go to um, is uh, there's a there's a, a, a doctor Alexander uh, Aksentijevich uh, who is a, a reader in psychology at um, Roehampton University and is also um, uh, a researcher. Um, at uh, Birkbeck College and uh, he's hit the headlines recently he and his team uh, for um, some research that they've done which seems to imply that maybe uh, if we're moving backwards it improves our memory it's not quite as simple as that and I will uh, get him to explain so I spoke to him earlier on and uh, well I asked him uh, about the research and about the headlines in the paper that appeared in Cognition recently it was published in Cognition we reported six experiments they were a combination of real motion, uh, then, you know, watching videos and imaginary motion. So, and so we looked at these three types of motion stimuli. So with, um, Im with imaginary motion, people would just simply be asked to imagine they were walking forwards yes, or walking yes, backwards, right? Yes. And we compared uh, these three types of motions on you know, remembering details of a crime scene video, well, staged, crime, innocuous crime scene video, some words and some pictures. So what did you discover? What we discovered was that in five out of six experiments, either walking backwards or watching a video of backward motion, that means sitting, sitting at the back platform of a train and watching the motion, the, 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 the optic flow, as it were, uh, of the motion outside uh, uh, the, the landscape changing, uh, or imagining to walk backwards, improved the recollection of uh, these various stimuli. In one experiment with imaginary motion and videos, we found that both forward and backward imaginary motion improved memory relative to the relative to control group so, 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 when, fairly, so when in yeah, the experiment please. did people do the do the walking so they they, they okay. did the walking the, first or what okay the the, the design is uh, roughly uh, like this they would be shown either a video or a list of words or a presentation with pictures and then they would do 10 minutes of a distracted task so they would do something to distract them for 10 minutes. Yeah. And then depending on which group they're in, on, or, you know, there, there, there are different designs as well, they could be then asked to either walk backwards or watch a video of backward motion or imagine walking backwards. Another group would walk forwards or watch a video of forward motion or imagine walking forwards. And the third control group would do pretty much nothing for that minute or so. And then after that, they would 
complete tests, timed tests of memory, of uh, recall, really, three recall tests, mm, more or less. Yeah. And, and uh, so you, you found an improvement in the people who were moving, and the people who walked backwards, theirs, theirs was generally the best improvement of all. The, the people who were walking backwards and people who were watching uh, backwards videos, videos of backward motion, and people who were asked to imagine walking backwards but uh, had to remember pictures. As I said, in one experiment with imaginary motion, which required participants to remember details of video, both backward and forward motion were improved memory. And why do you think this is? I guess this is now the subject of um, much theorising. People have used, first of all, various mnemonics based on retracing their steps, walking into, basically walking into the past, rewinding the film in order to find lost items, right? Yes. This is something the Romans might even have taught. They would, yes. There is there is the method of loci, which is, uh, you know, placing things into various parts of a of a house and so forth, and then uh, uh, recovering them mentally from there. And this could have very well involved some kind of temporal mental time travel. But the more important is the fact that it was the famous memory researcher Randall Calvin, who in the 70s described episodic memory as mental time travel. Episodic memory being the memory of personal experiences and so forth. Yes. Now, there is only one not so large a step from there to actually what we did, because there is a lot of research which shows that when people move backwards, their temporal thinking is focused on the past and they start to think about past events and when they're moving forward and so forth. There is a lot of that. And that, you know, when they're thinking about the past, their postural sway changes. You know, they tend to lean back a little bit, even with motion. So there is a lot of research which which points in that direction. And so basically, I just kind of, based on a previous study in cognition, which um, investigated how uh, backward motion affected the est subjective estimates of past and future distances. And we found that walking backwards led to a contraction of subjective distances in the past and walking forwards led to the dilation, like in a physical Doppler effect. And then from that, it was just really an idea. Well, I, I did not lean on any any existing studies, but it was all pretty much all there, and there is more. So if we all walk backwards, we're going to remember better. Is that the message? No, not, not quite, not quite. <laughs> it, what, 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 what is happening? I mean, first of all, we don't know uh, uh, the exact nature of the, of, the, of the mechanisms and processes. Well, we're just at the beginning. And this, this effect, the improvement in performance is pretty much the same across the tasks, whether they're walking or whether they're imagining and so forth. So this is, although, as I said in the paper, it, you know, walking does help because it, it, it additionally, because those motor cues might be helpful. But the nature of the process might as well be at quite a high level, quite a high cognitive level, which kind of activates schemas or various symbolic systems 
which then make the the participant focus more on on the past and therefore the, the the information that was stored becomes more salient but i really can't say anything more than that at the moment because as you can imagine and you know peeps, um, a colleague from leeds uh, has pointed out in in uh, the new scientist you know this first of all needs to be looked at and replicated but the effect is there and you know it's quite exciting to be able to work and and try and find out at least some of the some of the causes of, of it Alexander Aksentijevits, thank you very much indeed for uh, talking thank to you, us. Thank you, Malcolm. Uh, we wish you well for the rest of your research. Uh, th- thank you very much. Uh, um, well, you don't often hear uh, this description, but apparently Gaia, which is a telescope, or actually a pair of telescopes out in space, um, has spotted an enormous, what they call, ghost galaxy on the outskirts of the Milky Way. The Milky Way, of course, is the galaxy that we live in, and we live on a little arm on the edge of the Milky Way. And the way uh, you can see our galaxies, if you look out on a very nice, clear uh, night, and you'll see a strip of, um, well, like a Milky Way, way <laughs> uh, like a sort it's, it's because it's like a saucer uh, slightly uh, turned so so that we, you're looking across the saucer rather than straight flat onto it and um, we live out on one of the arms what is this ghost galaxy andrew was well, lurking on the edge of our own so it turns out that we now know what happens when we die. We all go to a ghost galaxy outside our... No, we don't. That's not true. I'm making that up. So the ghost, <laughs> the ghost, ghost galaxy. So it's called that because... Well, actually, let's go back a bit. Let's go back a step. This galaxy has been found by the Gaia satellite, Gaia telescope up in space, which has been uh, going through... Well, people have been going through the data from the, from the Gaia telescope, and they've found that there's a... A galaxy of stars, which is in uh, in orbit around our solar. Uh, sorry, our galaxy. We have the large Magellanic cloud. We have the small Magellanic cloud, which are you can see in the night sky in the southern hemisphere. These are um, galaxies in orbit around our galaxy that we know about, that we can see. But this is one that we haven't known about. And we haven't been able to see. And the reason we haven't been able to see it is because it is very dim. The stars in it are dim. Ah. Old stars. Right. It's... Oh, uh, no, does, does, is this what normally happens? As stars get older, they get, they get dimmer. Because I got this idea in my head that sometimes they get older, they get brighter yes. because they explode. Yes. But um, they, they, that would be some, but not all. And these ghost galaxies would be galaxies formed with stars uh, formed in the, well, dwarf stars uh, formed in the early part of the formation of the the universe. And uh, typically they wouldn't uh, burn hot or uh, feverishly enough in order to go supernova. And they've dimmed as as their lifespan has gone on but this this galaxy the reason we haven't been able to see it mainly is because it is from our point of view in the plane of uh, sight of the milky way so we're looking through all these bright stars that are in our galaxy and then there's this galaxy full of less bright stars which is orbiting around ours and we haven't been able to see it because our galaxy the stars in our galaxy are in the way of it um, the, what's really interesting about it, I think, is that uh, it has an incredibly low mass 
compared to what you would expect for the size of galaxy and it's much bigger than you would expect uh, much more spread out there's an awful lot to be done there's an awful lot to look into in the data here to see what why it's like this and one of the questions is are there a lot of these things i tell right. you, you know if the first time you find something um, it doesn't tend to be, statistically speaking, it doesn't tend to be an outlier. It doesn't tend to be the oddest thing, right? It doesn't tend to be only one of them. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that occasionally happens. But statistically speaking, that's incredibly unlikely. Yeah. Is it possible that there are lots of galaxies that we don't even know about right here in our galactic neighbourhood? Quite possibly. So when you look up at the night sky and you see all those stars and you think about all those stars being in our galaxy and then all those billions of other galaxies out there, there's even more, quite possibly, than we thought. Wow. And uh, this is nothing to do with the concept of dark matter. No. Well, you know, yes, of course, dark matter has something to do with the formation of... Uh, I'm just thinking ghosts, you know, oh, yeah. and all that kind no, of No, I thing. think there's two, there's two possibilities. As I started this, I said that I think, you know, when we die, we go to this ghost galaxy, and that's where all the ghosts are hanging out in this galaxy. It's one possibility, but um, it's not a real possibility, and mm. uh, we shouldn't treat it as such. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. Well, look, now to something completely different, which is bees. And uh, apparently bees are in trouble. And um, a, lot of, a lot of you will, will know, of course, about the... I don't know if I say this right. Is it the aviola riot, uh, virus? Uh, some such name. I will have to have to check that. But uh, bees have uh, suffered uh, badly because of that. Um, there's certainly another problem, which is the overuse of insecticides, air pollution, warming temperatures. Uh, sorry, I've got it written here, the Varroa destructor mite. That's what it is, the Varroa destructor mite. It's not a virus, it's a mite. Or even the interference from electromagnetic uh, radiation. So there's a thing called the World Bee Project and um, the IT firm Oracle are creating a global network of AI smart hives, which are going to try and give scientists real-time data into the relationship between bees and their environments. Um, they're going to put six sensors on hives to capture the sound of the bees buzzing. So when they're moving their wings and their feet, um, they'll, get, uh, um, they'll be able to hear the, the weight of their honey, the hive's humidity, uh, as well as the local weather and the pollution level. Levels and uh, sensors on beehives, they're not new. But the AI machines, the artificial intelligence machines, will be able to analyse the data so that they can um, get new insights into the health of the bees. Um, sound is probably the most important data set, according to John Abel, who's the vice president of cloud and technology at Oracle. They convert the data feed. They use this via machine learning to inform the beekeeper. So when there's a problem, uh, when they hear a problem, they can uh, begin to intervene and uh, do something about it. Absolutely extraordinary. Oh, that's brilliant. I Love know. that. I'm, uh, I'm all in, all in favour of the bees. Apparently, bees are crucial for agriculture. 1.4 billion farming jobs. Say that again. 1.4 billion farming jobs and three quarters of the world's food supply worth about... 577 bit uh, that buzzing noise has just stopped yeah, everybody it was I'm the sure bees you, i'm sure you've heard it's the bees thank you bees <laughs> um 
uh, <laughs> worth uh, $577 billion. That's half a billion pounds a year depend on the pollination of crops. And the 100 crop species that feed 90% of the world's population uh, are uh, uh, domestically uh, pollinated by wild bees. Honeybees are the single most important pollinator on the planet so we need to look after them that's true they also make honey and that's important very important yeah, i have honey every morning do you yes you and winnie the pooh me me winnie the pooh i have porridge and honey every single morning of my life which is oh. why i'm so trim uh why my hair is so curvaceous and, and <laughs> shiny yeah. 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 All I of, thought all I, of that. I mean, I wasn't going to compare Why I look to great in a leotard. You do look great in a yeah, leotard, but yeah. let's not talk about it on the radio. <laughs> all of those things is because of the honey. So thank you, bees. Thanks, bees. That, that's, that's all I can say. About 65 million years ago, mm-hmm. there was some massive impact with an asteroid crashed into the earth around about what's now called the yucatan the yucatan crater which is mostly underwater um close to the gulf of mexico and apparently it wiped out the dinosaurs yep it's one of the things that we think um we don't get to look much under uh, uh, underneath the ice um, under, uh, at the North Pole or the South Pole because it's incredibly thick. Yeah. But it turns out that uh, about half a mile underneath half a mile of snow and ice in Greenland, scientists have uncovered an impact crater large enough to swallow um, the DC, the Washington DC area. The reason the reason they're making that comparison is the story that we're looking here at here comes from the New York Times, but it's all over the place. Um, scientists have found that a giant iron asteroid smashed into what is today uh, a glacier during the last ice age, which is known as the Pleistocene Epoch, started about 2.6 million years ago. And, um, well, that's quite a discovery. It's incredible, isn't it? They discovered it by flying over it or looking at the data. First of all, looking at the imagery of the of the glacier, and they noticed a circular bit in the ice and snow. And uh, as the scientist himself says, you don't make a big circle of snow in many different ways. No. And obviously, one of the ways you might do that is by uh, well, that snow sitting on top of a uh, a circular feature in the ground, which is uh, as we were discussing earlier with impact craters on the moon. This impact crater, when they've looked at it through uh, radio data, so they've flown over it and beamed radio waves down it and picked them back up as they've reflected back, and they've they've discovered that uh, with this the shape of the ground beneath it is classic uh, impact crater stuff. It's got the ridge around the edge of the crater and then this raised bit in the middle. And uh, yeah, so would it? I mean. Um I mean, is it likely that there's something huge down there, or would it, or do these things just generally completely disintegrate? Um, I do you know. I don't know. I don't mm. know how that works. I've always. It's something that I need. Presumably, to there must be memories, uh, um, remnants yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. How, I, do, I don't even know how they've. Uh, why they know it's iron? Do you know? How uh, exactly. Well, that was going to be my next oh, question. Okay. I, w- I wonder. Wonder why they think it's iron. I mean, so asteroids are made of different things yes presumably yes they are um you know we were talking about that ghost galaxy yeah 
when we were talking uh, we were talking about those stars being young uh, stars that were formed in the early part of our um, universe being formed because they were in that early part they didn't have lots of metal in them because um, as stars oh, as the universe got older yeah. the stars got more massive and therefore were able to do this is this is you know getting into star formation and stuff and how yeah, metals yeah. are formed but um it, those supernovas we talked about for these massive stars um they are the heavier elements are cooked up in the heart of these massive stars and we didn't have those in the earlier part of the solar system just chatting about it now not not relevant to this at all really <laughs> the asteroids that's just fine yeah, asteroids are uh, usually bits of rock that are left over from the formation of solar systems um, our solar system and um, big bits of rock and occasionally obviously they're all orbiting the sun um, in a similar way to us occasionally uh, there's a big cloud of them called the Oort cloud and occasionally one of those gets pulled in by you know the orbit of um, Jupiter or it collides with another one and then gets knocked off its orbit. I'm looking at a physicist who's visited visitors in the studio and it's making me nervous. <laughs> and and, um, and uh, I, I just yeah. So the, these rocks get some of them are made of of, of metal because they were cooked up in the in the heart of really massive stars or indeed um, neutron stars or colliding neutron stars were discovered from the gravitational wave uh, discovery this time last year that things like really heavy metals are cooked up in the collisions between. Between two neutron stars, and um, it's just good to stuff to think about, isn't it? On the Monday, it afternoon. is. Well, you know, that's that great thing, isn't it? That we're made. Of, we're not only made of star stuff; we're mm. made of kind of uh, supernova stuff. Yes, <laughs> quite. Which is quite amazing. Yes, because the elements we use elements that couldn't have come from anywhere else, but from a super, super uh, supernova explosion. Yes, not just me and you, everybody. Not just me and you, that's right. Everybody. By the way, um, I think listeners are going to be very impressed to hear that we have our own guest uh, physicist in the yes, studio, we, and we keep obviously keep them in the cupboard. Yes, we don't like them for to this them show talk. And bring them out, and they just wave and point at They're us. They're just here get, to look we get things cross wrong. with me if I uh, say anything abso- wrong. Absolutely. Well, look, this the, when you hear weird buzzing noises in the studio, <laughs> it does. Physicist. It does tend to put your blood pressure up. Oh yes, and um, uh, uh, it turns out that um, some scientists uh, have been uh, from John Hopkins uh, University have uh, been doing some research uh, in a remote community in the Venezuelan rainforest. And um, it's generally been thought, or let's just say it's been assumed, that as you get older, your blood pressure goes up. I can attest to this. So you go and see the doctor, the doctor says, oh, you're a bit older now. Take these pills to make your blood, yeah. blood pressure a bit better. You and know. Is, is that a result of what the politicians are doing as you get older <laughs> yes. and older and older? I get more, up, more and more <laughs> yeah. upset and throw things at the television <laughs> until eventually it's just one long roar, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, and... and um, uh, but it, the amazing thing is that in, in, in this, it turns out that um, uh, the researchers have found that it doesn't follow that age increases hypertension uh, because uh, studying these um, remote communities, they've, they've found that they have perfectly uh, normal uh, blood pressures. As, as, as you would expect, that it, it turns out it's not, therefore, an inherent part of ageing that your blood pressure gets higher. So, um, 
There's a chap called Dr. Noel Muller. He's an assistant professor at John Hopkins University, and he said the idea that blood pressure rises with age as part of a natural as part of a natural phenomenon is increasingly being dispelled through the evidence, including findings from uh, the study that they've made in this uh, population in uh, Venezuela. Um, and uh, so. He, he, he wrote about this in the uh, JAMA Cardiology Journal, and um, his colleagues report that they contacted two rainforest communities. Um, I will probably say this wrong, but it's the Yanomami uh, people who've had very, very little contact uh, with the Western world, uh, the, the, and the other community is the Yekwana community who've experienced some aspects of Western life. And... Um, They've been sort of trading and so on, little planes landing, uh, and there have been visitors like missionaries, medical professionals, miners, uh, and so on. And they took the blood pressure of 72 Yanomami people, 83 from the Yekwana people, and they found um, that the low, the the Yanomami people, the people who have no contact with the outside world, had the lower blood pressure. So... The question is, what is it that we do in mm. our Western communities, mm. Western lifestyle, That's interesting. Uh, that puts uh, the, the, the blood pressure up? I'm going to try hiding in my shed and having no contact with the outside world for the next 20 years, and then I'll see what happens to my blood pressure. But I, I just think it's generally assumed you do that anyway. <laughs> so we, we, we wouldn't know. Fair point. We just send a taxi for you every week, bring you here, <laughs> escorted in by you, kindly oh. assistants, and then put back. There's a taxi? Yes. You could yeah. have told me there was a taxi. <laughs> oh, you walk yeah. every week. Oh, no. oh, very, very good. Now, um, Hannah Little is going to be on the show, I think, um, no, not next week, the week, the week after next, December the 3rd, because uh, she always comes in on the first uh, Monday of the month. She sent me this story. I have to credit her with this. I wouldn't want people to think that I go trawling through the Internet to find stories like this. But, yeah, but very, 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 very quickly, researchers investigate why excrement emerges in awkward-shaped blocks. All right? It doesn't. It's, there's a picture of... No, I see, not mine. No, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there. Scientists unravel secret of cube-shaped wombat feces is the story. Poor wombats. Poor wombats. Imagine that. Um, so, of all the many mysteries that surround the common wombat, it is hard to find one as baffling as its ability to produce feces shaped like cubes. That is odd. Absolutely. And it turns out that wombat intestines have periodic stiffness, meaning that they go stiff, soft, stiff, soft, and along the circumference to form cubical feces. That's right. what that's what they found. Isn't that amazing? So yeah. we can all we can all sleep easy in our beds now. Yeah. Can I just ask a question related to something that was happening earlier? Now you're talking about um, uh, if you walk backwards, yeah, then it helps your memory. Yes. Is that, do you have to like walk really fast backwards? Well, no. What they what they were saying in in that piece was that if we if we're moving when we're trying to recall things, it helps. Oh, I see. And weirdly and strangely, um, moving backwards enables um, in, in, enables us better to remember stuff that happened bef- 
before, as it were. Oh, so if we've if we've lost something, then um, we uh, if we walk backwards, the, not not necessarily even going to the place where yeah. we think we've lost it. We, oh, we might we might remember. But let's let's week next week. Let's do the show on roving mics. Let's let's do that and walk backwards the yeah. whole time. <laughs> hey, it's been such a pleasure to have your company uh, from Andrew Glester and I. We're going to say goodbye. Don't forget to join us again next week. Have yourselves a very nice evening. <laughs> <laughs>